Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. We're delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Our signature is featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who lead lives that illustrate inspiring ways to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. So it makes us very happy to bring Rita Corley Baker onto our show. In the way of connections, Rita and I met many years ago through common friends, the Frolicksteins, and have experienced good times, difficult losses, and more during our enduring friendship. Rita is a retired clinical psychologist who was a certified family therapist with private practices in Park Ridge and Chicago. Originally, she grew up in the South Shore area of Chicago. She's number three of six girls in an Irish Catholic family and started adulthood in a convent. The themes we will cover today are life after the convent, why she was drawn to psychology, her post-retirement commitment, and ways to think about aging. Rita is 74 years old and lives in the Chicago area. And so welcome to Women Over 70, Rita, Aging Reimagined. And let's start our conversation with what made you decide to leave the convent and how you found your way to psychology. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm flattered and honored to be with you. And if I can make any contribution uh, and pay back the many women over 70 who inspired me and continue to do that. Uh, nice. Um, I'm happy to be that uh, advocate for others. So it's a common question that is asked of me. Um, <laughs> I, some people, I believe, you know, you enter the common and you never leave it. Um, it. It was something I chose to do after much thought, probably about five years. I was in a total of 12 years. And I realized in my work as a teacher that I wanted to do something more for the children that I was dealing with, that I could see that in addition to the education I was offering them, that when I met with families and had to deal with behavioral issues in the classroom, I realized I was left without enough information. So that got me interested in psychology. And just around the time uh, of my considering to leave, the Vietnam War was going on. I was um, protesting, and I was protesting obviously as a nun, but we, were in, we weren't in our habits. We were in street clothes, which was part of what our congregation had changed to. They were pretty forward thinking. But the whole idea of being able to be a witness and um, offer a life of commitment to social justice um, was something we realized after Vatican II uh, did not have to be in convent walls. And so that inspired me to proceed. And I, I think I began to go to 
Loyola and do my undergraduate catch-up work in psychology because my major was in Latin mm. and that wasn't going to prepare <laughs> me for psychology. Um, and in that experience, I, it was even though it was a Catholic university and I had gone to Catholic school throughout my education, it was really very, I exposed myself to many different people who were now going to school as adults. And I think my eyes were just open to what was possible for me. And I found the life outside the convent and interpersonal and heterosexual relationships, something that I really wanted to um, pursue. And I wasn't going to be able to do that in the way that I wanted to in the convent. So that led me out of the convent and also into psychology. Um, wow. So I just proceeded to continue to work at that. And I took many smaller steps because I wasn't sure that I could handle the completion of a doctorate, but with a lot of encouragement from my peers and friends, um, I realized I really could do it. And that I now tell people, uh, they go, oh, wow, you have a doctorate. And I said, it's really not about smarts entirely, although that's important. It's really about being persistent. And following your dream and staying focused. I once told, uh, when I first took my the first course when I was working, because I worked throughout all of my schooling, um, I had to pay for my schooling and uh, that meant I needed to work. But it was, it was a good balance as well. But I told people I was beginning my first course and they, I said, I said, I said, oh, you're going to get a doctorate. I said, no, I'm taking my first course. I'm only taking a course. And they said, we know you, Rita. You will finish. <laughs> let's let's step back for just a moment. And uh, I know that you have many sisters, right? Do you have any brothers? No, we had a boy bird. A boy bird. <laughs> <laughs> and and what kind of a bird was that? It, we laugh about that. It, we had several parakeets, but to date, I still don't know how to tell the sex of a bird. But that's what we would tell people. And so there was there were six girls, and uh -huh. uh, I did. I think I remember from our conversation that more than just you went to the convent. Yes, I I say that I'm from an Irish Catholic family, and I and are you now true that my mother was Austrian. Yeah. And although she was raised Catholic, she was not the, you know, the same fervor that my father was to have girls um, give themselves to religious life. Um, and he also didn't have the finances to educate us, and he believed firmly in education. We were also his girls, his daddy's little girls. So I think it was safer for him for us to be and happier for him uh, and less competition that we were married to Jesus and not to any other man. So, yes, the first daughter went in. She's five years older than I. Then the second one went in. And she truthfully said to me, you have to come in after me because we were close in age. And she said that we were going to have fun. Well, subsequently, each of them left. <laughs> and I, I was the last one standing. So, although my older sister, my oldest sister did uh, she served for where well, she was in the combat for 12 years as well. Mm -hmm. My fourth sister was asked, what was she going to do? And she said, it won't be the combat, believe <laughs> me. So, uh, that's, that's uh, yeah, growing up in an Irish Catholic family, I'm sure you, you would have many stories to share, but we really want to know about 
why you were drawn to psychology and what that looked like as you moved into it more. Well, I, as I mentioned, it had to do with feeling, knowing the students that I was working with completely meant really knowing more about how it was that they thought and felt and what motivated them. And that just drew me to the field. And I pursued to, I proceeded um, to do my own individual therapy, which further uh, helped me appreciate what it was that enlightened people and made them fuller human beings. So I was for all lots of, lots of those reasons. I, I just, and I found it very interesting and exciting and it continued to help me learn more about myself. And by nature, I'm a very curious person. So finding out about why, people do what they do and what makes them tick was a natural. You have a lot of other interests though, I know. And so was it easy for you when you decided to retire after so many years? I think, did you facilitate groups? I, I did a, I did a lot of different things in the field. First, um, Although I was married, even before I went for my doctorate, and I had someone who in my life who was going to, with me, um, build a life together and, and assist each other financially, I always felt like I was, I think from a very early age, we were taught, make sure that you take care of yourself and you make money so that you can survive. So I, I think I... It, I I carried that into my profession and I made sure that whatever it was that I needed to learn and that would make me a productive and um, successful in the sense that I was able to make a living for myself. So I immersed myself in, um, I love children, uh, although I do not have my own. Um, I, I specialized in children and adolescent psychology. So I began to work with them. Uh, a lot of my colleagues did not want the that field because it was pretty intense and it meant that you're talking with teachers and parents and families and and then that got me into doing family therapy. So whenever I felt a gap in my knowledge or I wanted to broaden myself, I would just go back to school or take a certificate or go into another area. And one of them was groups. I mean, I really found personally when I was going to school and I was part of a group as part of our learning that I learned so much more about myself by being part of a group and watching other people and how they reacted and, and how they grew. It impacted how I was going to grow. So early on, I got very interested in group and did a lot of study around that and joined um, a professional organization. And I ran two mixed gender groups, each for 15 years in my practice at diff two different locations. And that was tremendously uh, exciting. Um, and I'm a person who gets, I wouldn't say I get bored easily, but I have to have a lot of different things. So seeing children, seeing individuals, families, couples, and group, it just worked really well with my personality. <laughs> That's I'd like to, Rita, I'd like to go back to um, the Vietnam War. You're still a member of the convent. You're protesting. And then you, you realize that your social justice need not be just 
um, contained within the convent. And, and has that theme of social justice persisted throughout your work? And if so, yeah. what way? Yes. It, I mean, it's, it is, um, I believe, in the more liberal aspects of the Catholic Church, of which I'm still a member, I um, believe that our, our mission and those who propose um, and aspire to that is about helping people, the poorest of the poor, and finding out when those who are in need are not being treated equitably and justly, and do what we can to right that wrong. When you decided to retire, and uh, you might want to speak to that a little bit. It's it's. See, I've heard you use the term post-retirement commitment, and and so explain that a little bit more. What what you mean by that, and and how you how you decided to retire, and how it is that you had you knew what you wanted to do. Well, I knew, again, as it has worked for me in the past, I usually spend about five years thinking about what I'm going to do before I actually do it. And that's not to say that I'm just lolling around and I'm procrastinating. I'm, it's my mind is percolating. So um, I knew that I didn't want to be a therapist as an, I didn't want to be an older therapist. I didn't want to be like creaking out of my chair. <laughs> and I found myself doing that a little bit more uh, and going, you know, I, I do. I wanted. I, well, maybe in part, I wanted to not be so old and not being able to be mobile and have my own fun and not be working. So that is, you know, I wanted to be young and be able to move on to retirement, young enough and well enough. Um, and the other was that I had worked for fifty years. Um, I had been a teacher for twelve, and I did psychology for thirty-eight. And I went, it's time to stop. Uh, and I felt I had made my contribution, and I I felt very good about the work I had been do doing with clients, and I actually prepared them, kind of created my own module for how to terminate and when to terminate and how to prepare people for termination. Mm -hmm. So it was a whole year's process, and I've given talks on that uh, to my colleagues, not currently, but... Um, I was ready to say goodbye to them and they were ready to say goodbye with, to me without feeling like they hadn't really had closure. So it was a very growthful and interesting process. And in the process of my retiring, my husband had, or in the planning that, my husband had passed away and my, my clients knew of my loss. And I think watching me go through that loss and seeing that I could survive it. I made them believe that they could get on without mm -hmm. me too. Yeah. And, and I did go through that loss with you and yes. And so, yes. And so. So post-retirement, I think to answer your question is about being healthy enough to make um, moves in the direction that I wanted to. So one of the first things that was, it gave me more time to do some travel individually so without my husband and so that that was part of my goal to have the freedom to do that and not feel like I had to get back to clients and so forth um, the other one I had a home in in Florida which I continued to use and enjoy and so that was part of my retirement and I decided that it um, 
that I wasn't going to jump into doing something to volunteer work immediately because I have, I had two sisters, one of them passed away um, two years ago, but two sisters um, that were fairly in need of some assistance and help support emotionally and otherwise um, that I thought, well, my volunteer work should, I wanted to begin with my family. And I was able to do that. Um, one lived in Wisconsin, she's the one that passed away, and the other in Indiana, who's now in the 16th year of her having oh. had a stroke and paralyzing one side of her body. She lives alone, she lives with her family, I should say, with her husband. So she was capable, but I, I was, I began to do like psychology, case management, hooking them up with services. Um, so that was really like a post-retirement uh, initiative of mine that it really, it, I was very grateful for being able to, to do that. Um, and then I began to say, well, what do I really want to do? And my, my love and interest and the, the, the situation um, that called me was to help immigrants, uh, detained immigrants. And I found an organization through the help of a couple other people that really focused on working with them in, in several different areas. And Could you tell us what that organization is? The group is called the Interfaith Committee, pardon me, the Interfaith Community for Detained Immigrants. It was begun by two Mercy Sisters, uh, which by the way, I in my social justice, I found the people I find that I work with are either uh, women and men who've been religious or been some in some kind of ministry. Um, so that's a very comforting and it's a, it's a common ground. But um, they began to um, be with detained immigrants when they were being sent, deported. And then they moved into doing um, visits in the jail. And that's the part of the work that I was interested in. And so currently I travel once a month to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and another part of the month to Kankakee, Illinois, to two jails and do ministry with those of us who have chosen that as the area that we're most interested. And currently this organization has about 300 volunteers who literally do active work in uh, supporting some aspect of uh, detainees, either as court watchers or helping people when they get out of jail um, and aren't deported, luckily. Um, what does that so, look like when uh, you visit these prisoners in jail? What, what are you doing, actually? Well, we're, I've never considered myself a minister, but and, and I guess in the more general term, I am. We minister to them. But one of the, I was just training somebody last week, and he he found my explanation or my introduction because there was one person. Um, what happens in these jails um, is that inmates are told about a group of people that are available for them to talk to about their situation or get help. And so we, uh, there are usually about 10 of us who come and we meet with probably three to four groups of men. They call them, they come from their pods. And so there might be anywhere from 10 to 20 men who sit down at any one of the four sessions with any one of us to talk about why they're there and what it is that they would want. And that could be, um, we're not there to do therapy. We're there to be supportive. We're there to tell them really that they're not alone because 
they know what the situation is. They know how others see them, and we try to tell them it's not how we see them, uh, and that we have respect for them, and they um, they have dignity. And if there's any way that we can be of assistance in writing a letter to the judge, calling some family members, we write to them, we set people up so they can be available to them when they hopefully get out of the um, the detention centers. So it could be any number of uh, situations uh, or assists that we make. And I, I was, many people to think that there are only um, inmates or immigrants of um, Hispanic or Spanish, or I should say Latinos. And in fact, I have met men from probably 20 different countries and men and women more men than women so it's a number of people that are coming into our country and asking for asylum and have all different reasons for why they do it many of them are just to seek a better life but many of them are there to escape um, being injured and hurt and um, um, so it, it's it's every every time i go it's a new experience and it's a blessing truly how frequently uh, do you do that um for each of them, I do it once a month. And so that means traveling there and meeting them very early and spending about four hours and then doing whatever post work there is to assist them in what, what it is that they've asked us to do and we're able to do. That's an amazing thing, Rita. Good for you. Thank you. I love it. I really do. And I, the people that I've met are just very enriching. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's really great. So, so your whole entire life really has been devoted to service in one way or another. And it's interesting. And, and one, of, one of what we try to express to our listeners is how people can uh, reinvent themselves, how, how working is not, you know, working for someone or having your own business is not necessarily ended when you when you retire it just takes on different meaning and and different ways of using your skills and you certainly sure. you certainly seem to have done that do you have any thoughts for our listeners about the process they can use to make that happen for themselves uh, i i think it's about asking oneself um what is it that you want to do? What what is your what is your what is going to give you purpose? Um, I, I think a life without purpose is can be pretty empty. And um, and and then tell yourself if if this is what I want to do, I think it's visualizing what that will look like, and then identifying what steps it would take for you to pursue that and to attain it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I'm blessed with energy in good health enough um not that there aren't issues but um so i i'd say stay connected with others and um and and be broad in your interests um which i believe i am i'm it's not only service that i do i really do enjoy myself and i have passions about things outside of you know helping others that give me uh delight what are some of those things well i always my husband 
actually introduced me to music and the opera and um, back in 1978. And I've continued that to this day. Um, he used to joke that I ended up loving the opera more than he did. Um, and I'd have to admit that it was true. Um, and I am part of a book club and um, I love movies and um, I, I just, I like listening to a lot of different kind of music too. Um, and I, I am an usher for Chicago Saints. So it's introduced me to a lot a broad interest area of plays and music and talent in the Chicago area. It's pretty magnificent. I, we're in this little island, really, um, of wonder in all that we have available. So that's a great idea. <laughs> when you travel, um, do you do you travel alone? Do you travel with other people? What's um, well, I traveled with my husband for many years internationally, um, but we would set things up on our own. And um, my last big tour that I went with others to answer your question, yes, I do go with tours, um, was to Australia and um, New Zealand for a mm -hmm. month, mm -hmm. and. And it was, in my mind, it was fairly costly. It was wonderful. I loved it. And then I thought, you know, I, I want to go to India. I was always wanted to go to India. And I went, I think I can do this cheaper than a tour. So I decided that I was going to go by myself. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't entirely by myself. So I made, I mean, but I wasn't part of a tour. I mm -hmm. just kept making connections here in Chicago and they helped me make connections in India. And when I got there, I found somebody that helped me there a lot and I was there a whole month. Wow. And, um, you know, it was really a beautiful, beautiful trip. Um, I think if I thought too long about it at the time, I might not have done it mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was pretty at, at my age. I mean, this is only a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. um, but I had never had a worry about my safety or any of that. Um, That's really but, encouraging. It is. Did you, yeah. Where where next? I well, there are two places. I mean, I would love. I, th there was a tour guide that I had for ten days, and we traveled about a thousand miles. Um, and it was set up by a tour guide at YMCA in India, in Delhi, actually. Mm -hmm. And he has toured in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to find a path there. Um, <laughs> but I, I haven't yet been successful. Um, he's quite busy now. And so he's not doing that. So I'm, I'm trying to make connections there. So that's one. Mm -hmm. I'd love to go to, um, I've been to a fair amount of Canada, but I've never been to Montreal and Quebec. So mm -hmm. I would like to do that. Uh, I'd love to go to Africa, but I, I don't know about that one. <laughs> what, what have you learned about yourself from traveling alone? Um, well, that you really can do something on your own is i guess to be brave um to have courage and it, it'll work out and that um when you depend on other people and for for assistance they will be there the i mean the, the light will be there um i i just don't be afraid but no don't be be smart too about it mm -hmm. um, i think it's given me a lot of courage and confidence in myself Mm -hmm. that I can handle a lot of different situations that I might not have been able to or thought I could. <laughs> That's great. I know in our conversation, you told me that you were, you had quite a few sports accomplishments. 
So yeah, yeah it was kind of interesting. I think when I um, I used to jog with my husband, um, and and then I, I as we were each getting older, I mean we would we'd do these ten Ks. But then I thought I don't something got into that I thought that I as I was feeling older, I was thinking now what what can my body do at this age? So in at 40, I said, oh, I got a friend of mine and she and I did walk the Grand Canyon. Mm. Uh, and, and then I said, well, you know, I always wanted to do a big bike trip. So I think around between 40 and 50, I did the AIDS ride that was 500 miles. Oh. Um, and I did that on my own. I went, you know, I even, and then I did triathlons and I, I didn't really train for triathlons. I just said, well, I think I can follow this. Um, <laughs> I, knew, I knew how to swim. I knew how to run. And my husband helped me in the runs at times. And I knew how to bike. So I thought, well, that's no brainer. You just had to put all three together. <laughs> um, and it, it was possible. And, you know, when you, when you say you're going to do something, well, when I say I'm going to do something, I usually finish it. But you get it really up for the event. So I, I had confidence in that, too. And then I, I always wanted to do the marathon. Chicago Marathon, but I knew I couldn't run it. So my friend and I, um, there was a cause that we each contributed to and we got money for. And she and I walked the marathon five years mm. ago. Mm. Uh, we were probably, we just hit the mark for charities. We got in at seven hours, but we did do a 15 minute walk. So we were quite proud of ourselves. And she was seven years younger than I. So <laughs> for you. So Rita, how, how do you think about aging now as you're um, approaching mid seventies and looking to, toward eighty. Well, I I think as long as my body can works, that I will continue to be active. Uh, and I walk. I, I I swim. I haven't done as much biking as I would want, so I, I'm looking for something that might get me on track there. Um, so I look as that I'm somewhat ageless, you know. And if you can. I was just watching last night of something that I had saved on AARP had the uh, over 50 awards, I guess. Um, and, and Shirley MacLaine was honored and what she has done with her life. And her little speech was about never be afraid of doing something on your own. You will learn so much about yourself. And the more you learn about this yourself, the more that you will want to do and you will have confidence in it yourself so i thought that was a pretty good message yeah it's a great message and it's a great message to yeah. end on yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here and for sharing your life with us you're well, truly thank an you inspiration for your <laughs> yeah it was, it was wonderful thank you and listeners we want to hear from you please become an active participant in our facebook community at women over 70 ask questions add to the conversation Tell us what topics you'd like to hear more about. Invite your friends, family, and colleagues to join in. Our goal is to create an intergenerational conversation. You can access our weekly Wednesday podcast at womenover70.com. And if you know a woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us on our website. Thanks to the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at DePaul University for use of their recording space. See you next week on Women Over 70 aging reimagined thank you for listening to women over 70 aging reimagined if you like what you've heard today please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen 
In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.